Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast. My name is Belinda Barker and I'm the Chief Executive. Today, we're going to be talking about change and agility and the ability to learn and test um, and to listen and absorb change from different areas. We'll be talking to one of the industry's um, great CMOs from one of the biggest conglomerates um, that there is, or conglomerate is probably not even the right word, biggest tech company out there. And firstly, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Sarah Thorpe. She's the Managing Director for Europe for the New York Times and also sits on the board of the World Media Group. Uh, So welcome, Sarah. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Belinda. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Great. Um, I'm excited to be on the podcast with you today and also really excited to have Alison Orsi from IBM with us. Um, Alison is the vice president and CMO at IBM, where she oversees Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Alison has spent her entire career at IBM beginning in 1993. She's worked all over the world, spending significant chunks of time in the UK, Paris, and New York, and she returned to the UK in 2019. She has a degree from Cambridge and earned her MBA at Henley Business School. Welcome, Alison. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you today. So I guess since we only have a limited amount of time, I'll just hop right in um, into some of the questions if you're ready. Sure. Great. So to start with, um, one thing that I was wondering is as a woman in a VP CMO role in a global top 50 Fortune 500 tech company, is there anything that you can tell us about your personal style of work? It's an interesting question. I think there's three things that I try to, or I aspire to be every day. And the first is to be authentic. I work in a tech company and having started my career nearly 30 years ago, um, I was surrounded then by um, a very different work style than today. And I didn't want to have to change who I was to fit in and progress. And so one of the things that I set myself very early on was to be authentic in how I showed up at work and who I was and to lead or to show to be who I wanted to be at work. And I'm lucky that I ended up in an organization or I landed in an organization that, that also believes that and truly encourages that. So the first is be authentic. The second, I would say about my style is team focus. Again, I believe uh, business and life is a team sport and I'm really motivated by inspiring and helping others around me. And the third that I would say has been the thing that has helped me most in my career is that I'm someone who embraces change and likes to think I have a growth mindset. I'm always looking for what's new, what's next, what can I learn? And that is what motivates, that's an intrinsic motivator for me. Um, So those would be the three things I'd say about how I would classify my style of work. Love that. So authenticity, team focus, and um, being able to embrace change and having a growth mindset. 
Um, so another question I was thinking about, um, you, you have had your entire career at IBM and it's often uncommon to see someone spend their whole career at one organization these days. Um, knowing that you've lived and breathed that brand and that business for your whole career, do you see that as having been a help or a hindrance? Just curious for kind of what the, the benefits and pros and cons are of that. I get asked that question a lot, Sarah, funnily enough. Um, on, on balance, I would say for me, it's been a help. I'm fortunate that IBM has a strong talent program and processes. And so I've enjoyed working for many great managers and with great mentors, all of whom have pushed me further and farther than I would ever have gone alone. I think I've stayed at IBM for two reasons. First, it's, it's always changing. Um, and it's always stayed core to its true values as well. So what we have corporate values, but the one that I identify most with is an innovation that matters. So really looking for how can we innovate? How can we keep moving forward, not only for our clients and for our company, but for society too. And so I get to work in an organization that's continually reinventing itself and how it does business. And from a marketing perspective, that means that just recently we've been focused a lot on becoming more client-centric, becoming more data-driven, driving agile transformation. And for me, that's been really exciting to be a part of. And it fits with my growth mindset that I was talking about earlier. It means I'm on a constant learning journey and there's always a new challenge that allows me to progress and grow. And secondly, I stay at IBM because ultimately we make technology that makes the world work better. And today, people might not know what, what we do as an organization. Today, we put the power of hybrid cloud and quantum technology and our experience in AI to work on problems. So we did a lot of stuff with clients and with society around COVID. This week, we just announced five research projects addressing sustainability challenges. In the healthcare space, we just recently um, announced a partnership with the Michael J. Fox Foundation working on Parkinson's. We have enabled thousands of developers in a program we call Call for Code, addressing everything from natural disasters to how we respond to diversity and inclusion challenges. All of those are super inspiring. And so if you look at me on LinkedIn, you'll quite often see me using the hashtag ProudIBMA. Um, so maybe that's a function of being here so long, but that is another reason that, that I like to stay. That's super interesting uh, and something for everyone to take note of when they're thinking about uh, inspiring people and retaining talent like you. I think, I think what I heard in that was just, um, number one, an always changing dynamic environment, but that's still where you're very much rooted to a North Star of creating innovation that matters. And then also just being rooted in social purpose that helps the world which is great. Um, so taking a, a different tack, um, maybe related to IBM, maybe not, um, I'm really curious to know who or what has had the greatest impact on your career? That's a really tough question for me because I'm fortunate to have had so many great role models and mentors. There are almost too many to mention. And I'm privileged to have had the opportunity to lift, but also be lifted by many fabulous women around me too. 
And I've worked um, in an organization that's championed diversity since before I was born. So there's always been great female role models for me too. And I'm spoiled by many who at different times have advocated for me and, and supported me. So what I think might be the fact that I landed in IBM in an organization that, that enables and fosters this kind of growth. Um, and maybe if I may, there are three women that I would shout out to chronologically. The first is a lady called Catherine White who gave me a second chance at a role in Paris after I turned it down first time for, I can't remember what reason, um, and taught me to ask better questions. And I have to thank her for introducing me to Caroline Taylor, who over the years has been my boss and my mentor and my boss and my mentor, who taught me how to be your authentic self at work truly and how to be a real leader. And then thirdly, I would say Michelle Peluso, who's our current CMO, who continues to teach me every day how to be bigger than the problem ahead of you, to focus on the best outcomes and to help people do their best work. Love all of those things. <laughs> I'm so lucky. Yes. I say that's not something I had anticipated hearing about IBM. That that that's nice, really nice to know. It's one of the as I said, it's one of the things that keeps me there and engaged in an organization like this because not only am I helped, but I also have the privilege of helping many others around me. So you've worked in regions all over the world and you spent a significant chunk of your time in New York and Paris, as well as here in the UK. I'm, I'm curious to know what have been the main cultural differences working in New York versus, versus London versus Paris and across other all the other regions that you work with around the world? Um, it's really difficult to pinpoint one difference because for me, the most important thing is perspective. And so in all of those um, roles. I've worked in roles focused on a country like the UK. I've had European roles when I was based in Paris and now in my current role. Um, and I had headquarters roles when I was based in New York. And so every time I've moved to a different role in the organization, it's challenged my assumptions about how I assumed that team worked and operated and and what, what they, you know, what they did. And so the huge value for me has been actually to be able to live and work and understand both those diverse perspectives, but also the different cultures in the places that I visited and worked, that I can come at problems different from different angles and ask different questions and ask better questions. And also approach a problem with empathy sometimes more to get to a better outcome. I guess if there's one thing that I would observe, and I can't tell if this is a New York versus London difference or a headquarters versus market difference or a US versus Europe difference, but I guess the thing that I noticed most when I came home most recently last year was that in the culture I was in in New York felt always focused on the potential outcome. Where could we go? What could be possible? what could we possibly do? Start with a blank sheet of paper and then we'd back into the challenges and hurdles that we'd have to overcome. When I got back to Europe, it felt that, and it wasn't only at IBM, it was just generally, we always seem to start 
more with the hurdles that we have to overcome, what are all the challenges that we've got to face so we don't forget about them, and then move on to where could we go. And I don't know that one or other is better than is better, but I know which I found more inspiring and more freeing, and that was to start without the limitations. That's super interesting. I have a question. You've mentioned you've mentioned um, in your response just now and before when we were just chatting about asking better questions. Um, it seems to be a key theme for you. I'm just curious if you can share a little bit more um, around that, maybe a few examples and kind of what you learned. I believe it was from Catherine White that you mentioned she taught you how to do that and also maybe even in your experience internationally. I think it's... Um asking more open questions and it, asking better questions starts with really listening to what's being said. And for me, it's asking questions with an open mind without having a presumed answer and generally just asking questions full stop. So I always remember um, Catherine, and this is interesting, I was in Europe dealing with worldwide colleagues and something wasn't going the way that I wanted it to. And my approach was to complain about all the things that didn't work, ask why, you know, why on earth, you know, why wasn't this working? Why wasn't, why weren't you doing what I needed you to do? As opposed to asking what was going on for the individual, what were the challenges that they faced? So it's a different question that gets you to a better outcome, I think, in terms of being more empathetic. Another way more recently is to really use questions that are grounded in data rather than emotion. And so this is about really being informed what's going on. So rather than asking someone's opinion on why something's working or not, actually have data in front of you that starts a question grounded in an irrefutable fact or an interpretation of data in front of you so that um, it takes all the emotion out of a problem or a challenge and everyone can focus on the common outcome from the same start point. So for me, it's about leaving your own preconceptions behind and asking better questions to truly understand what's going on and get towards an outcome. You, you talk about um, having um, the better data and less on emotion um, and, and, and I know, uh, again, before we kind of started this conversation now, we, you were talking about um, the agility and the, the, the need for agility within, within your uh, organisation. Um, the last six months, you haven't, we haven't had data to work on. N- no, one's, no one's lived through this before. You've got, um, I can't remember, you said 700 people across the organisation. How have you managed that with, without having the data to support it? Um, I think you can look at data in two different ways. You can look at data historically and say, what have we learned in the past? Or you can look at data in the way that scientists do in scientific experimentation and there all the data that you have historically essentially limits you to what you already know the whole point of experimentation is what don't you know and what can you learn that's coming ahead and this kind of kicks into that agile methodology that you mentioned as well 
which is actually what can we learn? So it's about being comfortable with data. And all through the last six months, we've been actually looking at not necessarily what can we learn from what we've been in the past, but every day, what is the data telling us is different? Every day we can experiment with something, try something, and three weeks later say, are we going in the right direction or not, and course correct. So it's building a different relationship with data, I think, that allows us to say, do we think this is working or not? What evidence do we have that, I don't know, this particular campaign or this particular way of working? And for us, in the last six months, it's been as important to care about um, obviously our customers' businesses, but also our employees and how they're doing, our business partners and how they're doing, and really thinking differently in every dimension of how we do business, but also what's the evidence and the data that we've got that tells us what's, what's changing. And so we can, for me, it's also about learning and course correcting as you go along, which is one of the core fundamentals of our agile approach as well, I would say. And how have you managed to keep um, all the other markets, you know, you've got so, so many different um, parts to IBM in so many different markets to, to keep them all uh, focused in the same direction when you're changing things at, at such a rapid rate? I mean, that, that, that's a massive role all in itself, isn't it? It, it is. I think... The good news is that we all have a, a common outcome in mind and we have adopted a way of working by bringing, by becoming an agile organization. And for us, that's as much about a mindset as it is about the, the rituals and processes of agile that people might have heard of. And that mindset is one that's rooted in data, that's rooted in getting to a North Star and an outcome, but it's one that also encourages experimentation and learning. And so whilst we give people um, really clear guidelines, the mindset of Agile is about operating with trust and openness and courage and respect and really empowering teams to be self-directed. So we have set a really clear set of goals and outcomes and things that we want to achieve. There are really clear guidelines on our brand and the priority offerings that we want to um, bring to market. And each of the teams have been able to learn and operate and experiment with what works best for them. So actually, it's been great. And I think I said to you, just as we were preparing for the call, it feels like we've got a generation's worth of innovation that's happened, that's going to happen in the next five years because of what we've learned in the last six months. And if you think about in my, in my function in marketing, in business-to-business -business marketing, we were you know, very, very focused and dependent on face-to-face -face events. We, we had to turn all of those off in two weeks, with two weeks notice um, back in, in March. And so each team have found their own way of working through the problem that we used agile methodologies, which allow for extreme focus, extreme prioritization, but a common way of working, common rituals, common tools. So everyone kind of knew where they were without knowing where they were at the same time. 
but it meant that we were always, you're not afraid of not having a clear roadmap. You know where you want to get to and everyone's okay with testing and learning their way forward into the future. Have you had any examples of, 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 of great creative thinking that ha- have, has come out of markets that you weren't expecting it to? You know, has Portugal come up with an, a, an amazing solution to, that you've been able to share across different markets? Or does it not work like that? It, it does work like that. And it's one of the greatest ways to get best practice. I would say um, we have... Uh, teams in the UK came up with a really great um, checklist for actually how we engage our sales teams differently because our relationship with sales is now um, more important than ever and if our engagement all the way along the client journey is different, it's no longer that we would have an event and a seller can bring their client and they can have a nice, you know, they can attend a hands-on demo or a lab together, they can go for dinner together, that that's not not possible at the moment. So how do we recreate that? What are the types of experiences? Our team in the Czech Republic, um, from a marketing perspective, came up with a great virtual event format that they had figured out actually what could we do within the COVID um, restrictions and how could we create something that was much more engaging than simply flipping to a Zoom or a webinar um, webinar process. Also, the team in um, the Czech Republic, not not marketing, but more broadly, um, were the team that came up with how do we use our own chatbot technology to create um, a solution for citizens who are desperate to know about what's happening, where do I go to get tested, what's happening in terms of what are the current um, restrictions, can I go out, do I have to wear a mask, so they built a chatbot for the Czech government to help take the pressure off their helplines. That team came together in using Agile, built it over a weekend, launched it or launched a minimum viable product within a few days. It was so successful that it actually became the blueprint to then be copied and ended up being used all over the world in many states in the US, in many national health trusts here in the UK, in many countries around the world. So there's there's lots of things like that, which means that it's not always command and control from the center. And it really allows for experimentation and ideation all around. And so we will be able to keep and take the best bits and, and move on. Awesome. That's incredibly exciting, the type of acceleration and innovation that you're talking about. And also just going back to the point you made about kind of a generation's worth of innovation happening in such a relatively short time period. I'm also curious to know when everything is changing at such warp speed and it feels like the ground is kind of shifting underneath us at all times, um, how do you guys think about even deciding what you're measuring and kind of how are you course correcting, as you put it, as you go forward to think about what exact metrics you guys have in mind for your marketing and your business outcomes overall? Well, I think the, um, the fundamentals of business haven't changed. And so our goal is still to drive pipeline and revenue for the corporation. In an organization like ours, we um, that can take some time because 
our offerings are quite complex. We're not, you know, it's not a decision that you make in 30 seconds and push a button and type in a credit card number. So it's if we waited for the revenue outcomes, it would be too long. So we have to work out what are the early indicators in a marketing funnel that tell us if we're working or not. So we can go right back to the beginning of the marketing funnel and look for trends and patterns and see how things are working. Typically, what we found is if things are working early on, that will likely flow all the way through the funnel. If things aren't working right at the beginning, you're likely not going to fix it lower down. So we focused on what are the top of funnel metrics that are most indicative. That might be responses. It might be engagement rates. It might be um, registrations for key events. We learned very quickly after our first few big digital events, for example, that not only are we reaching much bigger audiences, we're reaching much broader audiences than we have before and many new customers that have never, never engaged with an IBM event before. So we had to learn very quickly then that our nurture programs tended to be optimized for the type of clients we had previously and we had to update those very quickly because we could see that our conversion rates from different audiences were, were working differently. And so then you set a set of objectives and key results and those are changing over time as we need to focus on different elements of the funnel and what's working and what's not. So as long as we're really clear that the outcome hasn't changed, we can adjust the top of funnel measures to make sure that we're still tracking to that, that key outcome. Does that make sense? I think that's interesting because, I mean, now I'm not, I'm not trying to compare the World Media Group to IBM because, you know, we are a, a tiny, tiny speck. But... Um, yeah, we, we had to do exactly the same as, as you're talking about. You know, we, we had to go from, from live events to, to webinars. Um, they have engaged in, in, in a different way, but we've, yeah, it's, it's a much bigger, wide, you know, wider audience than we've ever been able to get to before, which is, is, is amazing. Um, if we could go to a slightly different subject, actually very different subject, but we're kind of pulling this towards the end. Unfortunately, as much as I would like to carry on for ages, um, uh, we, we, we're on a timeline, but I really wanted to go, go back to your career um, and, um, uh, yeah, thinking back over your career, is, is the one achievement that you can think back on and think that that's something I'm really, really proud of having done? That is such a hard question um, because there's been so many things that I've seen as highlights. And the most, the thing that I value the most is the fact that I've been able to be considered a role model for um, lots of women around me and who are coming through the, the generations behind me. But I think the one that, um, and so I, and I can see that from, you know, the, the feedback that I get from my teams and the engagement that I get, I think the one thing that might define um, the kind of uh, leader that I am is a few years ago, our C when I was running the UK, our CEO was coming for a visit and we needed to come up with an event, will be an event, um, to think differently about how we might engage, you know, our key clients to meet with our CEO. And normally we would get a large number of people together or go for an intimate dinner. 
we decided that what we'd like to do is try to run a panel debate. And at that time, we were thinking about the future of digital and the digital economy. And that was a hot topic for us as an organization. So we thought about convening a debate and I thought, well, if we're really going to be talking about the digital economy, then we really want to bring business and government together. And if we're really going to bring business and government together, then wouldn't it be great, as I looked out of our office window at South Bank, to then perhaps actually hold an event at the House of Commons? And everyone told me I was crazy. But in the end, we managed to host a panel in the dining rooms at the House of Commons with our CEO, with the chair of the CBI, with one of our key clients, with a Radio 4 um, journalist, and um, have... 150 of our key clients in the room to help us with a debate and really build a unique experience. And the team found that incredibly motivating because it felt like it was an unsurmountable challenge. And we managed to, to knock off every hurdle and, and do something that was really unique. Impressive, very impressive. So Alison, I think our last question for you as we round this out, um, We'd love to hear from the ch- from the changes that you have personally experienced in your business during the lockdown. Um, are there any learnings or kind of best practices or new ways of doing things that you want to take forward moving out of COVID lockdown once we finally do come out of COVID lockdown that you're going to apply to your working practices? Um, probably many. And I think there might be things that we do now automatically that we just don't realise are new anymore because it's been so long. Um, Little things like 25-minute meetings and 50-minute meetings instead of 30-minute and an hour, I think, is good. And actually really making sure that people have time to rest, recover. It's a thing that you practise more now because we're doing it virtually, but it's something that would be so beneficial every day. And... I think also bringing more play to work. And that doesn't mean play, but it does mean things that are enjoyable, problems and challenges that motivate people. One of the biggest things we found was actually when there are big problems that need to be need to be solved, we can crowdsource a team that want to work on it. And in some of the roundtables I've done over the last six months, that's one of the things that the teams are feeding back. They found the most enjoyable because it's felt like they've been able to contribute to the outcome and contribute to the future whilst learning something new and meeting some new colleagues along the way. And for that reason, that felt a little bit like play because it was outside of your normal your normal function, but keeping connected. So making time to have a rest and recover, however small that might, time might be, and, and how do we build more fun through innovation into what we do. I think that that particularly this week when we've had all all the news that we've had, I love that idea of of bringing more play to work to make work feel more more positive. I, I think we right right now we could all do with a little bit more of that. Um, Alison um, and Sarah, I'd like to thank you both for. This has been so fascinating and I wish we could carry on for at least another hour. Alison, maybe we could we could call you back on another occasion. Can we do a part two of the podcast, possibly? I'd love to. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Belinda, for having me. It was a real pleasure. And Alison, it was wonderful to get to chat with you as well. Thank you both.
Thank you.